Hello and welcome to InfoLinks On The Record. I'm Kurt Teese. And I'm Olivia Winkler. And we're live on the road recording this episode at the 2019 Nagara Conference, celebrating its 35th anniversary of improving government records and information management programs and services. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with some of this year's conference speakers. And with us is Brian Thomas, who's with the Texas State Library and Archives. Brian, tell us a little bit about what you do there. I am a digital preservationist. My job title is electronic record specialist. So what I do is we take in whatever formats an agency will give us for a transfer and I'll do whatever preservation work is necessary on the format to make it long-term stable. So if it's an outdated version of Word, that might be pushing it to a PDF because PDF is generally considered stable mm-hmm. and it's not able to be altered that much or not easily. And if we're providing public access, also having generating some kind of access copy for the record. So. A good example would be a movie file, which is typically in a .mov file. It's a QuickTime file. That's kind of the standard. Changing that to an MP4 file, which is something you can stream live on the web. Okay. Okay. And so, as the Texas State Archive, who are your customers? Our customers, in terms of accessing content, is the public of just the state of Texas. The customers in terms of people who provide us the information is state yeah. agencies, okay. mm-hmm. as well as legislature and the general executive. So like the office of the governor, when Rick Perry left office, he sent us the records of his administration. But we also have received like record sets from the Texas Historical Commission. We have records from like the Texas Department of Insurance, Texas Department of Agriculture. It's just whatever they're able to send us. And a lot of times, honestly, what we get is floppy disks or something in a box of other transfers or like a thumb drive that someone Three and a half or five and a quarter. Yes. All the above. (laughs) And CDs. And I think we may have some data tape. I know we have some data tape. So whatever they send us, sometimes it's intentional, like they'll email us meeting minutes because we have meeting minutes from a whole bunch of different agencies, but a lot of times it's more like, oh, we didn't know that was there. Okay. It's in the box here, and let's take care of it. So we were just talking with Rebecca, and she was saying how the conference next year is going to be in Colorado. Is it? Yeah, in Denver. Okay. So you're from Colorado? I am. I'm from born in Denver, raised in northern Colorado, in Loveland, Greeley, Fort Collins, that area. So what was the transition? How did the journey take you to Texas? So I was a history major. Oh, and okay. what, what type of history? Chinese history. So I went to Colorado State University, and I graduated with a history degree and a double major in Chinese studies. And then, so I was with my wife at that point. And we moved to Denver so that she could pursue her bachelor's degree because mm-hmm. there wasn't anything in Fort Collins, which is where the uni- Colorado State University is. And then turned out after we moved to Denver that Hawaii had the best program for what she wanted. So we moved to Hawaii. Oh, my gosh. What island? Oahu. We lived Oahu. in Honolulu. Nice. I live Caddy Corner. My apartment was Caddy Corner to the school that Barack Obama went to high school at. Okay. I could walk over there to the hospital I think he was born at. It was really, like, it's a very small town. So when she graduated, it was like, I want to go to grad school. And I moved to 
Texas because the University of Texas School of Information is supposed to have been the best in the country at the time. That's where I met Jelaine and Laura, my bosses right now at the Texas State Archives. But I went, after I graduated, I moved to yeah, Denver. That's a, that's a famous I'm, program. I've, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people have come through there. I got a job in South Carolina Department of Archives and History as their electronic records archivist. And then I got snagged away by the Texas State Archives after I'd been there about 18 months. And so I've been in Texas for this time for three and a half years-ish. I'm still thinking about Hawaii. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) he's really been coast to coast. (laughs) Yeah, Hawaii was a great place. It's Honolulu is an amazing city to go to and live in. Yeah. Amazing history, too. It really has an amazing history. It's tragic, I would say, in a lot of ways. We went to, is it the palace, King Kamehameha? Yeah. And some of the, yeah, how the U.S., not that many years ago, sort of came with the group of Marines and Mm -hmm. sort of acquired the Mm -hmm. island. Yeah. Iolana Palace, was that it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So in Texas... With this collection, I mean, this a lot of technology. What has been the challenge? What was the state of the collection when when you came there? So before Rick Perry left office, there was no electronic records program. The official guidance from the state archives was, "You guys need to keep this. We don't have the capacity to handle electronic records, but it's archival. You should keep a hold of it." Then when Rick Perry was leaving office. He decided he was going to send it to the state archives rather than donating it to a university. So we leveraged that to have funding to establish the digital archive. So we got the transfer and we started ingesting records. And I was onboarded later that year. So that transfer happened in beginning of 2015 and I came on in November of 2015. So does that include things like email? Yes, a lot of email. Probably at least 100,000 emails. Wow. It's quite a bit. Do those become public records then? They're all archival public records, but because of restrictions in email addresses, like for Mm -hmm. privacy reasons, the emails by default are restricted. They have to be reviewed and redacted for certain things. So, for example, you as an employee of Infolinks, since that's a public thing, You probably wouldn't have your email restricted, but if you were to send me that same email from your personal email address, it probably, your email address would probably be restricted. And so we would have to go through and convert the email to a PDF so we could redact it and then put it up online so people could access it. And is that part of the scope or responsibility of your team? Requests for information, FOIA requests, and so forth? I don't have the specialized knowledge for Information Act requests, but most of the other archivists do. And so it's a weird thing the way the Texas law is structured. You have different rules applying to different agencies. And so what's restricted in one agency might not be restricted in the other and vice versa. Because we as the state archives are accepting custody of those records, it doesn't suddenly get unified under one rule for restrictions. We have to try and abide by all the different rules that apply based on that agency. Uh So I don't have the institutional knowledge to know what the Department of Agriculture's rules are. 
I and see. even for an individual agency, the rules are very complex. So, but what I can do is assist the archivist by using different tools to help them find what would be responsive, which is a nice way of saying that it fits the criteria for that request. And then say, okay, here you go. This is what's responsive to that particular request. Mm-hmm. Based on the tools I have, these things might be restricted because it matches the number pattern for a phone number or a social security yeah. number or something. In Texas, speaking of white and how it came into the union, Texas kind of came into the union in a similar way. Yeah. There was a very short interim government in Hawaii that was run by the planters before they petitioned to become a U.S. territory. Is that part of your collection? Does it go back that far? It goes to the Republic, yeah. The Republic of Texas lasted for nine years, okay. from 1836 to 1845. And so, obviously, we don't have digital materials, but we have digitized, like, the laws of the Republic, and those are Sam publicly accessible online. Yeah. I wish you'd tell people, your the archives collection is based in the city of Austin. Yes. Texas. Olivia and I had a chance to go out and get a tour of the collection, which is uh, very impressive. Now Austin is sort of the happening place to be. I don't know how you would... uh, They say keep Austin weird. Keep Austin weird, yeah. So you guys are keeping the state records safe and accessible while everyone else is keeping Austin weird. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty interesting place to be. I have to ask about your degree, Chinese history. How did that become a passion of yours? I, and how do you pursue that in Texas? I don't. So <laughs> when I was in undergrad, I was first a business major. And then when I was started dating my wife, she kind of encouraged me to do what I actually liked, not what my parents thought I should like. Sure. And so I'm like, I really like history. And the Chinese history classes intrigued me. My favorite professor was a professor of Chinese history. And so I had to take a language class. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay. I'll do Chinese because I'm crazy, and Chinese is one of the hardest languages to learn next to English, so it was a major endeavor, and I spent a lot of time trying to learn about Chinese culture, Chinese history, and Chinese language, and it was all wiggled together. And the way I went into archives, actually, was I wanted to do something related to history. I really, really wanted to do something related to history. And I was a hair's breadth from going and becoming a professor rather than pursuing a degree in information, pursuing a degree in history. Mm -hmm. But then I found out, one, the job prospects for a history professor are pretty low. Mm. And I heard and saw some divorce statistics related to being a professor because being a professor is an incredibly stressful job. And you spend a lot of time away from your family, and you I spend think about a lot Indiana of time. Indiana Jones, and uh... yeah. So I didn't want to end up divorced, and I, it, <laughs> archives is related to history. And then I fell into higher into, marital success yeah. rate in yes. archives. And I don't know of anybody in archives that's actually divorced for reasons of the job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I fell into the digital archives, and it turns out I have a knack for it. Well, tell me about that part, because there's obviously a lot of technology involved with what you're doing. Yes. How'd you get the background in that, and what are some of the kind of tools of the trade? I really don't have much of a background that lends itself to them making me a digital archivist when I got hired in South Carolina. It just That was the job posting, and I when I went to archives, 
I intended to just do traditional paper. Uh -huh. But in the classes I took, it was like, hmm, this is interesting. I want to explore this idea more. So I kind of got like an advanced certificate. Not that that actually did anything for me, but I got hired in South Carolina as the digital archivist because that's what they needed. They needed someone to help them establish a repository. And really, you don't need a degree in information science, like as in computer information science, to be good at being a digital archivist. Uh -huh. What you need if you're going to do digital preservation is to be really curious and willing to learn and like puzzles. Because really? digital preservation is all about the puzzle. So How so? Every type of file format, like when you deal with things at the scale that we're dealing with, like anywhere from tens of thousands to millions of things, it ceases to become like an individual record. When I'm looking at something like a piece of correspondence, a researcher might be thinking, wow, Greg Abbott emailed Governor Perry to let him know he was going to run to be the lieutenant governor. Mm. I actually came across that once, and it was interesting. I'm like, that's interesting, but that's not what I'm looking at it as. I'm looking at it as a digital object uh -huh. with mm -hmm. what are the properties of that. It's a TIFF file. How am I going to handle TIFF? What are the important things about TIFF that need to be kept, and what file formats can match that? Long-term so, preservation. Long-term preservation format. So you have to be willing to look at different formats and try and figure out what is important about it and then move it forward. Databases, which is what I'm talking about in the conference, was a lot of research and tinkering and trying to figure out what's important about databases and what's the best way to try and keep that accessible in the long term because mm -hmm. keeping it like in a Microsoft Access file, as great as Access is for production, isn't actually good for preservation because Access keeps getting upgraded. Sure. And at a certain Version point, it stops being accessible because they no longer support it. And we have like 300 access databases or something like that. We have a lot. Wow. And I can't feasibly go back and upgrade every time Microsoft Access comes out with a new one. Just by, for scripting reasons, I can't go and say, tell the computer, open this, upgrade it, save it close and just go through that all the time yeah so what is going to be that format that's going to be the magic bullet for me to keep things stable in the long term and do you store locally on your own servers is it cloud-based it is cloud-based so our digital preservation system is software as a service and it runs in uh, aws for storage okay mm -hmm. we have local copies as well mm -hmm. as kind of a third copy and then we have a copy in our live servers for people to like work on processing. So once they're done arranging it, it should go a copy to one of our RAID cubes where we just have it sitting there in case something goes wrong mm -hmm. with everything else. And then we push the preservation copy to the preservation system. I don't know if I can mention who it is or not. It doesn't matter. Well, we saw but, a mic, so I imagine it's uh, <laughs> our friends at Preservica. Yeah. So we push it into Preservica. It does this automated preservation stuff to handle the humdrum normal stuff that we've developed policies for and to say yeah. we want it to do X, Y, and Z for these formats. So you have and a, a sophisticated, we, I mean, Preservica is a well-known yeah. archival, long-term digital storage system. So you're right. in a commercial-grade environment. Yeah. And then that leaves me free to handle the 
hard cases like the databases because those need individual care. Mm -hmm. It's the puzzle solving that you're talking about. And what sort of volume are we talking about? You mentioned millions of records at some point, like in terms of megabytes, terabytes. How big is it? Is it voluminous? It's the end of June. I believe we had 48 terabytes of data of stuff and 7.9 million files. And I know before the year is out, because I'm uploading a significant number of files, we'll probably have closer to 10 million, I'm guessing. I don't have an exact file count. And what do you get the most of? Would it be email? Is it digital photos, audio recordings? I mean, we're hearing people at the conference talking about drone footage now, body cams that uh, all this... (laughs) Texting, emails. Yeah. For Born Digital, in terms of like volume, number of files, it's various office productivity files like Word documents or Excel spreadsheets or something like that. Okay. By footprint, in terms of storage volume, it's TIFFs from things like people scanning and sending us like digitization scans that we then provide access to. Okay, so things that were paper and now they've gone through a conversion. Do you guys provide any of those services? or We don't provide that as a service. What we do is we do have a very robust digitization program. And so we're going through using like LSTA funding. I don't know what LSTA stands for. It's Library and Something's Technologies. Okay. It's a grant program that helps fund public access to historic materials. So... We're going through and scanning and getting a lot of really good metadata for these items. Mm-hmm. And we're putting like masters in the system and we're doing access like PDFs or something like that, typically. Or WAV files and MP3s for audio, yeah. MP4s for video, and just pushing all that up. And that has a very heavy storage footprint. I'd imagine that indexing and classification has to be one of the, the challenges. Yes. And is that something, do you rely upon the people providing the records to be indexing it? Do you guys do any of the indexing? Do you have tools for that? We do and we don't. So when something gets digitized, since it's being handled, we have a lot of metadata assigned to it. Like we go, okay, what is this? What are like some of the subjects that are covered in this? Like this is a law. For born digital stuff that we get from an agency, okay. and if they have data that they collected on it and they give it to us, we'll see if we can jerry-rig it so that it's in the appropriate metadata schema so we can provide yeah. access to that information. But otherwise, the only thing that we give is the collection name and what we would like people to use for a citation if they're going to say we got this from TSLAC. Otherwise, it's all about just full-text searching of the data. If there's embedded data, metadata, we're going to try and figure out how to work that out. For instance, we're trying... Perry's Press Office had embedded metadata from some of their photographers there to set and tags. So we're working on and kind of beta testing is extracting that, trying to normalize some of those tags so that they're consistent, and then pushing that extra description up to be paired with those items so people have greater access to it. But barring something like that where they have value added, it's not scalable to go through and do that for Born Digital because there are 
sometimes millions of things that you have to deal with and there's just not enough time and people. And do you have a, a portion of your collection that is publicly available like yes. through the website? Yes. The Texas Digital Archive has got about 700,000 items that are publicly accessible. Oh wow, that's a lot. Yeah, so it's still only a fraction, but mm -hmm. because of the Information Act laws and what's restricted, it's that's what we can definitely give access to. And if someone files an Information Act request, they can see what else is available and then mm -hmm. provide that. And if we redact something, it's possible then whatever was in that folder that got all redacted, we might be able to provide access to that folder. It really depends on the circumstance. So do you have any any anecdotes about some of the most frequently accessed records? Like what's the most popular on the site? The most popular, and I just ran this like a week ago, so I know this, is our Confederate muster rolls. What so, is that? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I tell our reference staff when they're like, no, no, did everybody you say muster knows. Or mustard? Yeah. No, no, everybody knows what muster. I'm like, I did not. I had to look it up. All right. So, muster roll is where they do the roll call for a military unit where so you you're say. So, you're mustering the troops, gathering yes. them all together? Yes, exactly. It's just a list of the people in a particular unit in a military organization. So, you'll have like a captain's name what the county or city or whatever, the name of the unit, and then the list of soldiers. And usually it's like age and a couple other demographic bits of huh. data. So are people looking to see if they have ancestors? Yes. Or I see. And so because that was digitized by us, we have a lot of extra data assigned to it that people are able to use to do research. So it, yeah, it was probably 40% of the views for our top five came from the muster rolls and it was about probably 10% of the overall hits that we have for the website. Give or so take. would facial recognition, I mean those are old photos, but uh, there are no photos. It's all just text. It's, oh, it's just text. Just like a spreadsheet document that you would open up or like an old census book. You just probably look at it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Handwritten, so not OCRable. It just, ice. it's not individually named. We just give like the name of the captain and the year in the county. And I developed a search tool that leverages the solar indexing from the system to be able to replicate an automated search so someone can say, I'm gonna choose this captain and we'll just pull up all the stuff for that captain rather than uh -huh. making them try and figure out what the captain's name is. It's just a pre-populated list. Click here, get all the captains for, wow. get, get everything for that captain that we have. So you mentioned you don't have photos. Where do the photos go? <laughs> the photos for the muster roll? I don't know if there were photos. Or were there digitized photos? Like, do, do you oh, store we the have photos? tons of digitized oh, okay. photos, but just not for the muster rolls. Okay. Our most popular photo collection is the Hornaday collection. He collected photos from around the world and around Texas. Who was it? William Deming Hornaday. Oh. Okay. And it's also one of our top five collections. And he took photos from all over the world, all over the place. And so for those, we have lots of metadata assigned because it was digitized by hand. And there was, like, notes on the back of the mm -hmm. photo. So, like, we can say this came from Mexico City versus this came from Chihuahua, the city of Chihuahua, as opposed to the state of Chihuahua in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Which I've been to. You've been everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some of the challenges in your role the challenges really are the puzzles that i like of 
what can you do for digital preservation for this particular thing? And sometimes you don't have a good answer, mm-hmm. or sometimes your answer is good, but it's not something you can do right now. Mm-hmm. So, for example, email, like the MSG format, is incredibly mm-hmm. bad for preservation because it's a proprietary format by Microsoft that you can't read on a, in a simple text editor, and so you have to have Outlook to be able to access it. I see. Okay. The preferred preservation format is a .eml file, and you can open an email program, and it'll look pretty like an email, or you can open in a text editor, and you can read it as if it was a text file and not have that same information you can access. I see. So that's the correct answer, but in our case, the preservation system is imperfectly doing the conversion at the moment. It may actually be perfect now, but the last time I tested it, it wasn't quite there yet. So I have to like sit on that until it catches up to what we need it to do. Okay. So, but hopefully that'll be fixed and I'll be very busy for a while because we've got like 100,000 emails just yeah. waiting their turn. Preserved. <laughs> well, and I would imagine the volume of records is... I mean, how fast is it growing? Is it exploding? Are you getting more and more? Is it overwhelming? Or is it just kind of a steady state? I would say it's not exponentially growing, but it's definitely on an upward curve. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of right-of-way documents we're getting from the Texas Department of Transportation, and those are scanned, so it's getting a lot of footprint. But we're also getting more agency sending stuff to us. Like, we got about one and a half terabytes of stuff from the Department of Agriculture that are all office files. I'm not sure what the file count on that is. It's probably a couple hundred thousand at least. So once we get those processed and in the system ready to go for public access, I mean, so sometimes storage and storage volume and file count growth yeah. are a little bit different. So what are some of your goals and objectives within the organization? Where would you like to see it go? I would like just mostly see it continue and continue to grow and continue providing access. Hopefully the rules in Texas will normalize to just one consistent standard or even better, the rules will be revised to at least be to be a little less restrictive and then we'll be able to provide more access to the things that we have. Mm-hmm. If we have consistent rules, maybe, I don't know, I toyed with this idea of Hopefully someday we can get like machine learning to a process where we can identify things that better identify what might be restricted. And then we can be willing to accept the possibility that providing public access is a risk benefit type of a thing and how risk averse are you to something. So if an agency comes to us and says nothing here is restricted, do we have to double check it or do we trust them? Because in one case, we actually received records, and it turned out there was restricted info, and the person didn't know that it was restricted. And, and when you say restricted? I think it had people's email addresses on it. Okay, so in okay. terms of whether it's publicly accessible and who can yeah. see the records? Yeah. So nobody in the general public can see that, and even an agency employee that's like an outside agency employee shouldn't be seeing that without it being redacted first because... When they're coming back to us as the archives, they're a member of the public at that point. Mm -hmm. But if we can have tools that can kind of go through the documents and pre-flag things that'll help us feel comfortable 
it might be able to expedite access because I mean archives are about access without access what am I doing Mm -hmm. And I know that on the physical side, it is a cost recovery program. So they're yeah. charging the agencies for their services. Is that the same uh, no. on the digital side? We will do, if there's information act requests that people have, then we will do like a cost recovery because it takes a lot of man hours. I don't even, we didn't used to charge that much. We just got approval to charge more. Mm -hmm. It doesn't actually cost the same as the labor involved to do it so if we say take 20 man hours i don't know what the fee is but let's say it's five dollars an hour that's a hundred dollars to the person it really took maybe a thousand dollars worth of man hours to recoup to actually do that task but it's all just general funding from the legislature that we have for staffing or in the case of the Texas Digital Archive, there was an initial fund set up that it draws on. And now that it's being mentioned in law, it starts becoming a more general fund thing where we're guaranteed to be part of the archives program rather than a special project that can go away just because we run out of money from the initial donation. So outside of studying Chinese history... Yeah. Living in Hawaii. What are some of your other passions? I am a big runner. Oh, really? I really um, Distance? Like kind what, what, of. What race would you be training for? I stopped racing because I found that I was forgetting that I was signing up for races. 10K is probably the distance. On Saturdays, I run about 10K on a given Saturday. 5Ks are a little too short for me now. I like half marathons. They're a lot of fun, but... 10K definitely is where my like fitness level is. Mm -hmm. Someday, hopefully, I'll be able to do a marathon. I've always wanted to do like the Greek marathon because that would mm -hmm. be awesome. But they, they have a marathon on the Great Wall of China. Do they? I just yeah. So that would be a great one for you. And I have a friend yeah. who did one at Disney World. Yeah. You know what's funny about that? You know how Disney World is so expensive to go to. It's just one of those places that's expensive. Yeah. It. It's cheaper to sign up for the marathon and get a free pass for the day into the park than I think it is to actually just pay for going to the park for the day. Wow. Life hack right here <laughs> on, on the record. And you get a cool medal. So maybe someday a marathon, but mostly half. And I love video games. Big. Yeah? I love video games. Not shooters. I do not like shooters. So what are... I'm trying to think if I know any video... I don't like video games. <laughs> <laughs> I would, RuneScape? No. Tomb Raider? Um, Fortress? No. No. <laughs> Tomb Raider's probably a go-to. Uncharted is another one I really like. That one I actually have played. And are they like the online multiplayer where no. you're interacting with other? No. No. Those are a dangerous thing to get into. Because Do you remember Mist? Yes. So is it more of that like adventure problem solving kind of it is it's a little more interactive than mist where mist you kind of did like a screen by screen this is more 3d you wander through the world but it's very i would call it a level of art with video games at this point like really? it's just gorgeous to play mm -hmm. and watch like if you've ever played god of war or uncharted or tomb raider it's just jaw-dropping you're basically playing through what looks like real life or mm -hmm. In the case of something that's a little dark, like Bioshock, you're playing through a horror movie. 
Yeah. Which, by the way, is an awesome video game. If you've never played it, it's the only first-person shooter I like. What's it called? Bioshock. Bioshock. My brother's really into video games, so I know all these. But, yeah, the stories that they tell through the video games are incredible. Like, the attention to detail the attention to developing these characters that you get to play through it's right. it's like it's almost better than movies for some of them and you get to yeah. be immersed in them well, and that's what i've read that first is generating more revenue than the entire movie industry mm-hmm. but as an entertainment media yeah. they're putting more money into the production development value yeah. of the experience and then the stories mm-hmm. so it's you know sort of replacing right movies now in a lot of ways i think it'd be very interesting to see what digital preservation goes on with video games because Mm -hmm. of everything that goes into it and Mm -hmm. it's very interactive it's not like static like oh this database was used for this and it's a record and now it's not being used or it doesn't Uh interact with anything it's these dependencies are all tied to each other Mm -hmm. and can you preserve the individual things and how did they all go together? And Interesting. I see that and I'm like, oh, that would be so much fun. That's like the big puzzle would yeah. be how to figure out how to preserve a video game properly. And do you emulate the environment that it started mm-hmm. in, which might be a slower computer, might be like tube TV type of mm-hmm. like um, resolution, or do you let it run in a faster environment? Because yeah. some video games, if you put it on a modern computer like play too fast like a bullet might go too fast and you'll die too quick you're about to say something oh no i just was thinking about the video games and the preservation is the with the tragedy that happened at notre dame in the burning they actually use 3d modeling done by assassin's creed i love that game too is that right they're gonna use the 3d so since that notre dame is such a landmark that so many video games have emulated and studied it and rebuilt it to render it to render it properly in video Mm -hmm. games that they're going to use those renderings and that code to reconstruct Notre Dame because so many video game designers and researchers have studied it and cataloged it so particularly to render it properly in a video game. And Assassin's Creed is a very good video game to look at if you're looking at video games as digital art because even if you don't want to play it if you just watch someone it's very artistic and the way everything is done it's got a lot of detail a lot of like historic things that go into it that they don't just create a new world that has blood and guts like random boxes in it they actually go through and like try and replicate people in period dress or Mm -hmm. now is that we were talking about uh, Twitch the other day is that I don't know you I've never Twitch played stream. Twitch. So Twitch well, well, Twitch Am I saying the right thing? Yes. Yeah, but Twitch. Yeah, but you know Twitch where you go and you, like you're saying, watching someone playing the video game. Mm-hmm. Isn't that where that happens? I don't know. Okay. For someone who's like really like liking tech and the puzzles involved in tech, I don't tend to do a lot of tech stuff when I'm not at work. Yeah. Like I'm not mm-hmm. very much into social media personally because I... I'm old enough where I was in Facebook when it first started, like within like the first year or so. Mm-hmm. And I went through the dark path that a lot of people go through where they go way into Facebook and they spend all, so much yeah. time. And then I'm like, no, nah, I got to I gotta walk away. Yeah. yeah. I, I stopped, it is uh, a big productivity uh, December of last year, I just decided one day I'm going to not touch it, not open it, right. and see what happens. 
And yeah, you kind of, when I started traveling and spending more time thinking about, would this make a good photo? Mm -hmm. And being mm -hmm. too conscious of that, yeah. I decided it was time to put it down. Yeah. I mean, social media is a great tool for communicating, and I think it's kind of a good preservation mm -hmm. question because there's two aspects. There's the data side and there's the how it looks side Yeah, that are both part of the record there. But mm -hmm. for me, for myself, I think I got too much of an addictive personality to... <laughs> it's, you know, it's like the There's MMO. a topic for us to explore. There you go. It's, an MM, it's like the MMO video games where, like World of Warcraft. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you start playing those games, most people go overboard and spend all their time playing their video games. And I know myself enough to know that I will get too far into it and I will spend too much time. So I'm just going to say, no, I'm going to stick yeah. to my easier video games that won't suck me in. <laughs> well, we appreciate your time. And yeah. it sounds like you're doing some very exciting things. Next time we're in Texas, we want to come and take a look. But okay. we appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. Great stuff. Thank you, yeah. Brian.